0: And so um, we want to go together to see what, uh, what the Lord has said for all of us. Well, many years ago, um, Beth and I were first married. Um, I was working as a youth pastor on a pretty meager salary and, uh, we were trying to pay down student loans and, you know, buy things like food every now and then. And uh, we got a very odd letter in the mail, um, a bit of a gimmick from some you know, well-known Feed the Hungry organization. And uh, inside the letter was a package of carrot seeds. And the, the idea was um, there are starving families in Africa, so take these seeds, send them back to the company with a cash donation, and then they would send these seeds over to Africa where they would uh, feed the hungry there. Well, we weren't particularly moved by this Gimmick and uh, And even if we had been we, we didn 't have any money to send anyway, and so we thought, well, if these seeds aren 't going to be getting on a plane and going to the other side of the world to feed the hungry there, um, they may as well go in the ground here and feed the hungry at my house and uh, So we cleared a spot in the garden and we planted them um, and to be fair, my wife and I are not exactly known as uh, green thumbs, but, uh, but we watered them carefully, we watched them with eager expectation and not a single green shoot so much as broke the surface of the dirt. Not one. I hope those weren't the actual seeds that were going to go over to Africa. That would not have been helpful because um, what they sent us were bad seeds. They were not healthy, life-producing seeds. They were faulty. They They were dead. And so, good seed produces good fruit, or in this case, vegetables. We started last week looking into the letter of Colossians, um, looking at the authority of it, some of the message of it, who the Colossians are, um, this message of grace to the church through Paul. Um, This week, we're going to move into uh, a prayer of thanksgiving. Now, again, this is a pretty... Typical format of a letter in Paul's day to go from the, the greeting to a word of thanksgiving. Um, but of course, Paul um, is filling that out. He makes it theologically rich. He's so intentional here. Um, if you remember, the Colossian church had been threatened by uh, some false teaching. Twisted uh, Jewish legalism mixed with this idea that the kind of true life, true Christian life also needs this this higher secret knowledge, this deeper wisdom. Um, The the true Christianity needs to be supplemented with with visions and mystical experiences, even the worship of angels. And they're tempted, the Colossians, to, to wonder about their own faith. Are we missing out? Did we not get the real deal? Are we falling short because we don't have these things Um, that these other people are talking about. Is Jesus alone enough? Well, it's possible they're wondering, right? did we get bad seed? Is Jesus alone somehow lacking? And so Paul, as he's making the statement of thanksgiving, um, very pointedly and deliberately is, is showing them, no, in Christ, you do have new life. It's happening. There's evidence of this growth that, that you, have, you, you have the good seed dwelling in you. Um, you can tell the, the good seed from the bad because the good seeds grow. So um, look with me at this, this prayer of thanksgiving and, and what it shows us about gospel growth. Looking at uh, Colossians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning as those who are poor and needy, who are helpless and weak, but you have given thought to us. You are our deliverer. God, we look to you this morning. Would you teach us? Would you encourage us? Would you strengthen us with your word? Lord, would you open our eyes to see um, the glory of Christ and the wonder of this gospel in a fresh way um, to be filled up again with confidence and joy? God, would you send us out from this place um, with hearts on fire, um, passionate about your glorious gospel? Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. So this prayer from Paul, uh, it actually has two parts. You'll, you'll see the thanksgiving that I just read, and then starting in verse nine is the beginning of the petition, um, the requests. And and uh, actually, Grant Monkedall is going to be preaching that passage right here next week. His debut sermon. Don't miss it. Um, pray for him. We've been working hard together on that. Um, but uh, uh, this week, we're just this is just kind of the entry to this prayer. This this thanksgiving statement and uh and, and Paul is is again he's he's filling out this thanksgiving showing the Colossians what healthy gospel growth looks like showing them they they have this evidence there's these sprouting seeds in their life they have the true gospel so that's that's point 1 verses 3 to 5 is the growth of the gospel in us this is what it looks like in us. Look at what he thanks the Lord for as he prays for them. Um, three words stand out. Um, did you notice them as you read? Faith, love, and hope. Familiar triad of words. As so we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Um, powerful triad right there. And, and it's used a number of places in Paul. You probably are most familiar with it from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, and, and rightfully so. Uh, Paul talks about the importance of love, the great love chapter, right? And he shows them that, that you may have all kinds of outward acts. You might, you might be able to speak in the tongues of angels. You might have prophetic powers to know All things, you may have this deep understanding and knowledge. You may have faith that can move mountains, the ability to sacrifice your body to the flames. But, But if you don't have love, it's nothing. It's worthless. It's dead. It's bad seed. It's no good. That's not gospel growth. It's just surface. It's shallow. It's useless and dead. And, and he ends that chapter with a, a verse. I think we all know: faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What's Paul saying? Right. The, the exterior things, some of those visible things, um, they're not the true markers of gospel growth. The true marks of gospel growth are faith. Love and hope. And and Paul is telling the Colossians here, I see these things in you. This is happening among you. It's, It's there. Notice as well the logical progression. I found this very interesting. Their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So their faith and their love is flowing out of the hope that they have Let's push a little bit further. Why do they have this hope? Where does this hope come from? Well, he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. That's where it begins. That's where it comes from. It starts with the seed. It starts with good seed. And and out of that good seed comes new life. The the, the gospel produces hope. And that hope overflows into into love and, and faith. In the gospel, they found hope. So let's start at the beginning. It's, it's all about the gospel, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the beginning point. That's the root of all of this. And Paul calls the gospel here, he says, the, the word of truth, the gospel. We need to pay attention there, don't we? And our world does not like truth. We like relative truth. We speak of my truth and your truth and I need to speak my truth and you do your thing and I'll do my thing and it's okay if we totally disagree black and white. We just need to pretend like we're both right and carry on. That won't fly here. Not gonna happen. Won't make it through the grid of God's word. The gospel is the capital W word of capital T truth. The truth of God, the truth of Christ. And that is to say, the objective, unchanging, true for you, whether you like it or not. God's not asking your permission, it's true. The gospel, the good news is truth. And so, the gospel begins here the the unchanging reality that we're sinners. There's a truth we don't like, we're a wreck. Whether we admit it or not, we're we're broken people, rebellious against God. We have not given Him the worship and honor that He deserves, not one of us, not for one moment of our lives. And, And because of that, we deserve His rightful wrath. We deserve hell. So here's the good part of the good news. Instead of destroying us on the spot, as he would have been right to do, instead of just relegating every one of us to hell for eternity, which would have been righteous and good, he sent his son to live the perfect life, to die on the cross, to take the wrath that we deserved on himself, so that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. That's unspeakably good news that we can be saved out from the wrath of God and into the limitless blessings and joy and love of God's grace. And it's Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Trusting in him and him alone. And out of that truth, having believed that truth, having, having come to terms with my own wretchedness and uselessness to do anything good and throwing myself on the mercy of God because of what Christ has done, there's hope. The gospel brings about hope, hope of forgiveness of sin, hope of a, a guilty conscience wiped clean. Hope of uh, this frustrating battle with the sin in my own heart to someday have victory in Christ. Hope of escape from the pain and suffering of this broken world, and hope of an eternity of peace and joy with Him. Two things about this hope, as I just said. First, um, it's a future hope, right? Their hope is looking forward, it's not hope primarily for right now there there are parts of it like we have blessings of the new life here and now we we walk in that to some degree but but the fullness of it as Paul says is laid up for you it's stored away it's kept safe in heaven it's one of the marks of the true gospel it gives hope that is forward-looking I'm not I'm not expecting this world to give me everything my heart desires I'm not looking for my my joy and satisfaction now. I'm not surprised to find suffering and trials here. I'm looking forward. My eyes are ahead and that, that future hope is what drives me. The second thing about this hope is that it's a hope in Jesus, right? It's not vague in general. It's a hope that has all of it bound up in Jesus, Paul shows this elsewhere as he continues through this letter. verse uh, Chapter 1, verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery. He's talking about the gospel. Um, Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? That, that's our hope. It's Christ. 3, verse 4 that we looked at uh, over Easter. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. That's our hope. That's when the good stuff really comes. He is our hope. It's future and it's Christ. And so the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, brings us hope, forward-looking, focused on Christ. And and out of that hope then springs love and faith. First, let's look at love. Um, Clearly, love for one another. The love... That you have for all the saints. This is crucial. This is a, a quintessential mark of the true believer, the true, the person who's truly saved. First John 3:14. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. So those who have passed from death to life, those who who have been saved by Christ, love the brothers. They love the, the church, the, the people that make up the body of the church. So listen, if you see the church as just kind of another social club, it's another community organization, maybe your, your parents went to church and brought you along, and so now that you have kids, feel like that's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to bring the kids to church. You're right, it is. We're thrilled that you're here. But you have to understand the church is so much more than that. This is the family of Christ. This is the gathering of people whose lives are so radically defined by having been rescued out of that desperate place of sin and brought into the family of God. And the hope that we have in that um, produces this bond of love that we have for one another. Not, Not just a mushy feeling of love. But a practical, tangible, sacrificial, I will lay down my life to serve you kind of love. Even though we're different people, even though we have different ideas, even though we have different backgrounds, different preferences about all kinds of things. Let's get real edgy now. Even though we have different ideas about COVID-19 and what to do with it. We love each other. right? That, that, That stuff all falls behind. It all pales in comparison to the love that we ought to have for one another, a love that that defuses anything that would seek to divide us, and a love that infuses every conversation. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Guys, we have this crazy world to press through for. What, 80, 90 years? Maybe 100 if you're really lucky. And when all this chaos and confusion is over and the suffering and the struggle is done, we have an eternity in joy and peace together. Together. So the gospel produces this hope which overflows into a love for one another. And then into faith. Faith in Christ. Now, just the way this is worded, I, I, I don't think he's talking specifically about kind of that initial act of faith. That's often where our minds go, that, that first moment of saving faith. Um, because you need to trust in Jesus. You need to have faith in Jesus to have hope. Right? Without that saving faith, there is no hope. But the seed of the gospel, when it takes root in, in your heart by faith, it begins to grow and it produces An ongoing faith. It produces a life defined by faith, by continual trusting in Christ. And the first thing that that faith looks like, faith means peace in Christ. Do you have peace in him? Peace in the midst of a of a chaotic world, Remember, this faith is born out of the, the hope that we have, the hope of heaven. We're looking forward to that. And, and when our lives are rooted in that hope, we realize this is not what's most important, right? That's our identity. That's where my, my fears will be put at ease, where my pain will cease, or my suffering will end we face this world and whatever it throws at us, we we ought to be able to walk into it and through it with a sense of underlying peace and the hope that we have in eternity, the hope that we have in Christ. This is not our home. So things don't go the way we planned. It doesn't wreck us, right? It's not the end of the world. My life is hidden with Christ in God. That's untouchable. I'm I'm just a sojourner here. I'm just passing through. It's not my life. This is not what makes my identity. I never expected to find satisfaction and joy and comfort in this life. Things are hard. Yeah, that was the plan. That's what I expected. So faith means peace in Christ. Secondly, faith means obedience to Christ. So simple and yet I think so commonly just missed. But, But to believe what he says, to really believe it means to do it right? That's going to show up in our decisions. If I trust Christ, I'm going to obey him. I'm going to do what he says is best. Now, absolutely, there's the danger of legalism, right? That was happening in Colossae with the heretics there. Um, They had made their own kind of strict rules to be carefully obeyed. They were adding unbiblical rules. They got wrapped up in trying to earn their way to the new life. That's a very different thing than faith in Christ, trusting in Him that works its way out in humble obedience, right? Obedience that flows out of the grace of the gospel. Obedience that's that's rooted in the hope that we already have because of what Christ has done. That's the fruit of the gospel. That's what that good seed looks like in us as it grows. So let me ask you, you, do you know that gospel? Have you repented of your sin and truly trusted in him and him alone? Is your hope wrapped up in the things of this world? Is your life defined by the the pursuit of the the love of career or money or comfort? Or are your deepest desires, your, your deepest longings looking forward, wrapped up with Christ in eternity? That's what my heart is set on. And are you living out of that hope? Does that define you to the point where, where it produces love? Love for the saints. where produces a life of, of trust, of faith in Christ that, that, that shows up in a, a peace that rests in him and an obedience to him. Now, none of us walks this perfectly, right? Gospel seed does not make a, a full grown oak just appear in the spot no it begins small and it grows and sometimes it has hard seasons and maybe even withers a little bit but it continues over time steadily and subtly growing that's the the good seed of the gospel that's what it ought to produce in us that faith love springing out of hope and and let me just pause here to echo paul thank god for the gospel growth that has been happening Guys, this has been a rough year. Anyone else feel that? I'm going to be blown away if you didn't. It's been rough. We've been tested and stretched. Some of you have lost jobs. Some of you have been stuck at home for long periods. Some of you have, uh, I think all of us have had just some some simple pleasures that we've taken for granted, kind of unceremoniously ripped away. It's trying. As your pastor, if I were to have the privilege to sit down with Paul, like Epaphras did and just share with him. Let me give you an an update on the church in Olds. I think by and large I'll be able to say there's gospel growth, Paul. The gospel's at work. That good seed is producing faith and love and hope. We've had some bumps and bruises. Um, We've had some stressors this year. We've had some some discouragements and frustration. Uh, Our love for one another has been tried. Some of you have been through some deep trials this year, some struggles, some hard things. But I see gospel growth happening through it. I see the Lord at work. There there is ongoing, increasing evidence of of good seed planted. Praise God for that. What a joy we have to to see that at work, producing love for one another and and faith in, in, in trust and obedience that's the gospel growth in us. Paul then shifts the, the true gospel, the good seed. It doesn't just produce that growth in us, uh, but it continues in producing that growth in the world. Look at verse six. We're gonna, we're gonna back up a little bit into chapter five to start uh, the beginning of the sentence here. Paul says, Of this you have heard of. Th- before in the word of truth the gospel which has come to come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth the true gospel the good seed of the gospel it produces growth in the world End of verse 6, you can see Paul is kind of pushing back again um, against the false teachers in Colossae. He's kind of making this point, reminding them, you heard and understood the gospel in truth. You guys got it, Colossae. It was the true gospel that was brought to you. It's the true gospel that you believed. And that true gospel, just as it took root in them and was bearing fruit in their lives, is bearing fruit All over the world. Now it begs the question, Paul, what do you you mean by that? Does this verse mean that by the time Paul had wrote the letter to the Colossians, um, that the gospel had gone around the entire world? No, we know that's not the case. Um, Possible that Paul is thinking a little more specifically like the the known world. The gospel has gone out to the whole Roman world. uh, and, And that would be reasonable if it weren't for verse 23. Down in verse 23, you'll see Paul um, kind of restates a similar thing. And he says, uh, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. All creation under heaven. Paul, like you've been in prison too long, buddy. Get in touch with the rest of the world. Like that's not happened. That's not not the case. I think what we see in Paul here is is a bit of a prophetic optimism. And not prophetic as in he's telling the future, but prophetic as in he has confidence in what God has said. He has confidence in what is to come. The power of the gospel, the plan of God, and therefore the, the ultimate victory of the gospel. So easy so easy for us to look out at our world and the chaos and corruption and decay and the frustration around us and just be discouraged. Right? Like you watch the news and you think, where's the church? Where's the gospel? What difference does it make? How does our world continue to, to careen off this ridiculous cliff when there's a, there's a Bible in every hotel room in, in North America? What difference does the gospel make? Is it it working? Does it even matter that Christ has come? Why are we still in this mess? And guess what? The Bible's pretty clear. It ain't going up from here, guys. It's not getting better. That's not the track that we're on. 2 Timothy 3, 1-4, Paul writes this. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of joy and peace and ease No. Difficulty. Difficulty. It's going to be hard. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Ouch, Paul, we get it. It's going to get ugly. It is ugly. That's our world. That's the world that we live in and it's getting worse, not better. Read the book of Revelation. The governments of this world, the the overarching spirit of this world, the dominating influences, it's not going the right direction. As the world progresses in, in technology and capabilities and we have this great kind of optimism. all oh, the world's going to be so great. We're going to be able to help people with all these things. But the problem wasn't a lack of technology. The problem is sin in the heart. And so the greater our technological capabilities become, the greater we're able to use those for evil. So why does Paul have this overwhelming sense of optimism? How does he get this? Because Paul doesn't suffer from the same malady that we often suffer from. We suffer from a condition called kingdom confusion. We see the the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, and they tend to mingle in our minds, and we get them confused. We see the government and the news and the world spiraling out of control, and we forget. We forget that when, when Jesus was standing in front of Pilate, think about that. He's had all of his rights taken away completely. He's about to be wrongfully condemned to death and murdered because of his righteousness. The rulers of Rome, the rulers of the Jews, the people of Jerusalem are about to commit the single greatest injustice, the most wicked atrocity that would ever be perpetrated on this globe, bar none. And Jesus stood resolutely, unfazed, unsurprised, undeterred, and simply responded, John 18, 36, my kingdom's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. This kingdom's a mess. This is a disaster, but that's not my kingdom. The disciples struggled deeply with this kingdom confusion. Even after Jesus had died and rose again from the grave, um, flip over to Acts 1. Just want you to see this. We'll spend a little bit of time here. Acts chapter 1, they confront Jesus. So get this, like they're talking to the risen Jesus. And in verse 6, they're pushing on him. Jesus is now the time. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they saying? Jesus, enough with the parables. Enough with this meekness thing. right? Enough enough with the secrecy. No more games, Jesus. Let's do this. Let's knock out the Romans. Let's fight. Let's take over. You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. This is going to be great. Are you bringing your earthly physical kingdom now? You're gonna fix this world? Are you gonna undo all of the injustice and the wickedness and the suffering and bring peace? Are you finally now gonna reign as King Jesus? How does Jesus answer them? Well, his first answer is no. No. There's a yes in there, but first it's no. Now, my kingdom's not of this world. That's what he says. Right? Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the Father has fixed by his own authority. They knew that language. It's not the first time Jesus had spoken this way. Jesus is pointing them back to Matthew 24, 36. Concerning that day, no one knows the day or the hour, right? You don't know, but but he's pointing forward to the second coming. That's when it'll happen. The culmination of all things. That's when that fullness of physical kingdom comes into play. So he points them forward. He says, no, that's not for now. That's not the the age we're in, guys. I'll do that when I return at the second coming. He's he's confronting their kingdom confusion. It's not about a worldly kingdom now. Those things come in eternity. And then, then comes the yes. So first he says, no. No, this is not the time for a physical kingdom. This is not the time that all the political wrongs in this world will be set right. We're not overthrowing and, and correcting the wicked Roman rule. And verse 8 then starts with, but. But, what are we going to do? What does this look like? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. My kingdom is is here already. It's already starting. And my kingdom will spread. Not just Israel. You guys are thinking way too small. It is going to blow out, not just over Rome, but to the very ends of the earth. My kingdom is here. It's just not of this world. You're looking in the wrong place. You're distracted. You're confused. My kingdom doesn't topple governments. My kingdom doesn't bring an end to to all the evil people in power and all the unjust systems that are around us. My kingdom rescues sinners out from that broken world. They become aliens and strangers in this world, citizens of of a heavenly city with their eyes focused there. So all through the book of Acts, there's this weird contrast that plays out. The kingdom of this world through the book of Acts is powerful and evil. The Jews oppress and attack and silence the church. Herod kills James, locks up Peter. Paul is beaten and stoned and imprisoned over and over again. He's chased out of every town that he sets up in. And the book ends with Paul imprisoned, awaiting his certain execution. And yet the focus of Acts, the clear thread that runs all the way through the book is what? That the kingdom of God continues. The kingdom of God is not hindered. So Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 6.7, the word of God continued to increase and number and the disciples multiplied greatly. Acts twelve twenty four. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Sixteen five. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Nineteen twenty. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So the kingdom of this world keeps doing its thing. It doesn't change in many ways. But the kingdom of God is still growing, in spite of all of that kingdom of the world um, could not then and cannot now touch the kingdom of God, right? it's, It's flesh fighting against spirit. They take a swing and they go right through. Now the day will come. Oh, praise the Lord, that day will come. Revelation 11, 15 When the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, those kingdoms will be brought together. Christ will rule, but not yet. Not yet. We need to keep our kingdom confusion down. Don't let your view of the powers of this world, the evil of this world, make you think that the the kingdom of God is hindered. Don't get distracted by the kingdom of this world getting, getting just far too caught up in, in, in politics and, 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 and trying, to, trying to fix the physical things here and now. Not that we don't care about those things, not that Christians don't run into those things. But that's not the kingdom of God. Our, our glorious resolution to those things is the gospel. Don't be discouraged. When Paul promised that the evil of this world is going to go from bad to worse, it's going to happen. It shouldn't shouldn't leave us breathless and winded and wondering and surprised. Don't let that wreck you because in the midst of this self-destructive kingdom of the world, the kingdom of God is growing in victory. The Lord is gathering his lost sheep. He's calling men and women from every nation and tribe and people and tongue. That was true in Paul's day, and it's just as true today. It's more true today. That kingdom has continued to spread. The good seed of the gospel grows. It grows in us, and it grows in his world, continues to go out and expand as people hear and understand the grace of God in truth. Do you see the progress of the kingdom? Do you see that as much as the the world and the devil rage against it and and even have significant influence and control in this world, the kingdom of God is not stopped. It is not deterred. We should not be pessimistic about the kingdom of God. We should not be fearful about the, the state of our world. We should not let earthly power struggles be the the focus of our our worry or the the focus of our hope. We're not citizens in this world. We're just passing through. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be victorious. So that's the, the growth of the gospel in us, which then produces gospel growth in our world. And then finally, Paul turns to the question of how. And here we see the gospel growth through faithful servants. Look at verses 7 and 8. Let me read them again for us. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul turns his attention to Epaphras. We talked about him a little bit last week. Um, Though Paul uh, preached and taught for three years in Ephesus, just just down the road from Colossae, uh, he never visited Colossae. Paul himself never went there. The church there was started by Epaphras, who heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus and then himself became a messenger of that gospel. No doubt the, the false teachers in Colossae would see Epaphras as a threat. Right, they would need to they would need to overthrow his credibility if their teaching was going to proliferate in the church. And and Paul, the apostle of Christ, takes this time to, to affirm the role that Epaphras played. And in doing that, Paul I think points us to an essential piece of this gospel growth puzzle. The true gospel grows in us, and it grows. In our world, and it grows through faithful servants. And and notice about this gospel that he's he's already said back in verse 5. This faith, love, and hope, it, it grew in them from the gospel when? When they heard it. Just as you heard before in the word of truth. Again, verse 6, the gospel, he says, which has come to you. How did it come to them? They heard it as indeed. So in the same way, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard of it. Significant but simple truth. The gospel message goes forward as it is heard. What does that mean? It means we need to speak it. Romans 10.13 is a glorious truth. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.14 then asks a very pertinent follow-up question. How are they going to call? How does that happen? How do they call on someone they've not believed in? And how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear? Unless someone is preaching. So Sure everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved but how's that going to happen if there isn't someone speaking it Well John that's your job I put my 2 cents in the plate and that pays your salary and you do the preaching No No I'm I'm a pastor I'm a shepherd My job is primarily to feed the sheep. This right here is primarily to be a gathering of believers being built up and fed in God's word. The word preach here in Romans 10 is not so much about a sermon. It just means to proclaim, to speak, to tell the truth. Speak out the message of the gospel so that people can hear and respond and be saved. Epaphras could so easily have said, Paul, you're an apostle for crying out loud. You're the guy personally sent, commissioned, given authority by Jesus Christ. You go to Colossae. I can't do that. You're the pro. You're the guy with the credentials. You go do it. But he doesn't. He takes Paul's message and he becomes a fellow messenger. Because that job Belongs to every single one of us. Paul, as an apostle, uh, is the official ambassador of Christ with the the very authority of Christ. But Epaphras is some unknown, um, average young man who heard the gospel, believed it, and took that message from Ephesus to Colossae. Probably also to Hierapolis and Laodicea. And in that, Epaphras became a fellow servant with Paul. And we, each and every one of us, are not only invited into that exciting and glorious partnership, but we are commissioned and commanded by Christ himself to join in this work, to be fellow servants with Paul. Now, that word servant there, we better translated slave, but that kind of rubs us the wrong way. That's a bad thing, that it rubs us the wrong way. But it's okay. It's good news. The fact that we're merely fellow slaves is very helpful, I think. It means this isn't about me. It means I don't have to be strong enough or convincing enough or winsome enough. Uh, That's not my job. I'm just the slave. I'm not the savior. I'm just the messenger boy. It means I don't have to have all of the answers. Neither you or I should expect that I have all the answers. I'm not the savior. I'm... I'm just the servant. It means that you don't have to respect me. You don't have to care what I think. And my goal isn't to tell you what I think, just to bring the message from the master. I'm just an instrument. This isn't about me. It's about him. It's very freeing to be just a slave of Christ. But let's not miss the obvious here. We're slaves to Christ. We belong to Him. You were bought with a price. You're not your own. We're his. And our master who owns us has honored us with this most glorious of all appointments to be his messengers, his fellow servants alongside men like Paul and Epaphras proclaiming the life-saving gospel to a lost and desperate world. Heralds of the kingdom of God, messengers of this great reality that that in spite of the outward appearances is growing and spreading and victoriously conquering. Don't miss out on this. We have a message. A message that brings faith and love and hope to those who need it most. A message that is able to, to transform lives, but so much more importantly, to transform eternity. You see yourself as a fellow servant, a minister of Jesus Christ. And where do you walk that out? All of us ought to be living that out regularly in your work, in your neighborhood, in the Coffee shops and restaurants, hardware stores, mechanic shops, wherever you are, whatever your job happens to be, whatever your personality happens to be, all of those are given as a gift to you so that you might serve the Lord as his faithful messenger. That's for all of us, no questions. Certainly there are some who are particularly gifted in evangelism, but we're all appointed to this task. Now, that's every one of us. Maybe there's some here that God is calling you more specific way. Like Epaphras, this, this gospel needs to go out from here. Not just olds, but just like we went from the church in Calgary to olds and now are planting in Red Deer. What's next? There There is desperate need for more churches in Alberta, in Canada. There's gospel need. Need for faithful ministers who will who will give themselves to that task. Or maybe further than that, maybe the Lord's calling you to to the ends of the earth. Some remote corner where the gospel has not yet reached. How amazing would that be to be a part of partnering with someone from this church and say, hey, we will send you off to some country I can't pronounce where we're not even allowed to tell where you've gone. Praise the Lord. Somewhere that the gospel has not yet gone, but guess what? It is going. And it will continue to increase and multiply. Because that's what the true gospel does. We've been recruited onto the winning team, right? So get out on the ice. Get out on the field. Get in the game. The gospel is powerful. The gospel will not be stopped God's work, his kingdom is going forward. It grows in us. It grows in our world. And it grows through us as faithful servants. I invite Josh and the worship team to come. Um, but I want to ask you, take a couple of minutes. I'm take a couple of minutes before the Lord. Um, what's God calling you to do? Who are the people in your life that, that you need to be praying for? Who need to hear the gospel? That you need to step up and, and have the guts to to just open your mouth and begin to speak. Trust the Lord and just be his messenger. Pray for them. Or maybe God's calling you to more. Maybe God is calling you to, um, to, to go to seminary and get trained, to go plant a church, to be uh, a missionary overseas. Who knows what the Lord would do? What a, what a glorious thing that would be. And, and we would love to, to partner and work together in that. Um, but just let's take a few minutes in prayer. Definitely each one of us needs to be praying for who are the people in my life um, that, that I need to be sharing that good gospel with. Let's pray for them. And uh, Josh will lead us in worship in a moment.